find Daniel 5. The party's over. Daniel 5. You've all heard the saying in many contexts before. The handwriting's on the wall, right? This is where it comes from. People in the world use that saying all the time. And a lot of them have no idea where, where it even uh, comes from. And uh, you'll be able to tell them after tonight, right? Okay, verse 1, King Belshazzar. Now remember not to be confused with the name that Nebuchadnezzar gave to Daniel. That word, that name had a T in it, Belshazzar. This is Belshazzar, different. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple, have a chain of gold around his neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I've heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. 
If you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them. And you've praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Now, folks, as we move into Daniel 5 tonight, I, I want to begin by giving the historical perspective of where we are now in the book. Almost 70 years have passed since the events of Daniel chapter 1. Nebuchadnezzar had died in 562 B.C. after reigning for 43 years. 23 years have passed since the end of chapter 4. Now, extra-biblical sources fill in the details of the kings who followed Nebuchadnezzar. In that 23-year period between chapter 4 and, and chapter 5, a, a bunch of worthless kings have come and gone. Nebuchadnezzar's son, evil Merodach, followed Nebuchadnezzar. Now, his reign was arbitrary and licentious, and after two years, he was assassinated by, by Neraglissar. Neraglissar reigned for four years, and he died in battle. 
Now then his son Labrasorachad or Labashai Marduk, boy these are some names aren't they? He was only a child. He reigned for nine months until a conspiracy resulted in him being beat to death. Now the conspirators appointed Nabonidus, one of their own number. He reigned 17 years before being defeated by Cyrus the Persian. Now Nabonidus is described as a man who didn't like to stay at home. He was on the road fighting the Medes and the Persians. By the time we get to Daniel 5, he had been captured by them and he had been living in Arabia. Now his son Belshazzar served as his co-regent for almost the entire time of Nabonidus. And so while Nabonidus was abroad, Belshazzar looked after things on the home front. Now that is going to make sense because we're going to see that he called for anybody that could read the handwriting on the wall would not be made the second in the kingdom but be made what? The third in the kingdom. Because there was already Nabonidus, Belshazzar and so the best that Daniel or anybody else could be made would be third in the kingdom. Now later in the text, Nebuchadnezzar is called Belshazzar's father instead of grandfather and he's referred to as the son. Now it's widely recognized that due to the fact that in both Hebrew and Chaldean there's no word for grandfather and the word for father was a blanket term that would be used for one's father or grandfather or ancestor or in the case of kings, one's predecessors. And so Belshazzar is the grandson, Nebuchadnezzar the grandfather, but again the generic term father is simply used. Now as we come to chapter 5, again about 23 years have elapsed between chapters 4 and and 5. In that 23 years, the revelations given to Daniel in chapters 7 and 8 occurred, putting chapter after chapter 7 and 8 chronologically. Remember I've said before that Daniel 7 through 12 lays down chronologically on top of Daniel 1 uh, 1 through 6. Okay? And, And so again the revelations given to Daniel in chapters 7 and 8 that we'll come to in a few weeks Uh, had occurred putting chapter 5 after chapter 7 and 8 chronologically. Chapter 7 was revealed to Daniel in the first year of Belshazzar and the vision in chapter 8 occurred in the third year of Belshazzar. Now chapter 5 records the last night of Belshazzar's life. Chapter 5 is dated in 539 B.C. Now the Greek historian Herodotus is even more specific than that. He dates the fall of the Babylonian Empire that took place on this night as being October 29th, 539 B.C. That's pretty specific, right? And that's the Greek historian Herodotus. 
Now, Daniel is apparently in semi-retirement. He's no longer a VIP because he was Nebuchadnezzar's friend and advisor, and Nebuchadnezzar is gone. And it's widely held that the grandson, Belshazzar, didn't really have much to do with his granddad's advisors. Sad to say, he'd kind of written them all off. Well, when chapter 5 begins, the mighty army of the Medes and the Persians have conquered all the territory of Babylon except for the city of Babylon itself. So when we come to chapter 5, the city is under siege. Now, Herodotus indicates that Belshazzar had 20 years of food stockpiled in the city and his plan was simply to wait Cyrus out. Nobody thought the city of Babylon could ever fall. It was so secure, the walls so massive, and a series of walls. The Babylonians thought they could just kind of retreat and hold up in the city and it didn't matter what was going on outside that the city itself could never be penetrated and never fall. Plus, they didn't have to worry about water. Not only did they have food stockpiled, but the Euphrates River ran underneath the massive walls and diagonally through the city of Babylon itself. Now, chapter 5 can be divided nicely into different scenes, kind of like in a play. Scene 1, we see in verses 1 to 4 a shallow celebration. All over the empire, people must have been excited because the king was throwing a party. And this party was going to be a real uh, wingding. Now, a thousand nobles invited along with their wives and concubines. And apparently, it's believed that maybe this party was a morale booster. Because with the, with the enemy outside, uh, sort of everybody needed to have their, their uh, egos stroked a little bit and morale boosted and they just kind of needed some cheering up. Plus, I mean, after all, with the enemy outside, nobody could go anywhere anyway, right? Might as well have a party. Now, some have suggested that the party kind of had an in-your-face message to Cyrus. Who's afraid of the big bad wolf outside? Now, archaeologists have excavated much of ancient Babylon. They've uncovered banquet halls inside the city of Babylon that were capable of seating 10,000 people at a time. Now, evidently, the party got off to a great start at some point in the party. The king gets a brainstorm from hell. What's the brainstorm from hell? Let's take all of those vessels out of the Jewish temple that my granddad Nebuchadnezzar had captured. Let's bring in all those sacred vessels out of the temple in Jerusalem. And let's drink booze out of them. And let's make offerings uh, to our pagan gods. Be kind of like somebody taking a communion set at church and dumping out all the grape juice and bringing liquor in and pouring the liquor in and passing that around and just saying, let's get drunk. Instead of communion this morning, uh, let's just kind of get drunk and have a party. That's sort of what they're doing here. 
Now I want you to notice scene two, a shocking interruption. In, in verse 5, this hand is seen. What's going on here? God's crashing the party. Without warning, here is a disembodied hand writing. If all of a sudden you saw a disembodied hand writing up there on the screen, would it get your attention? I think it would. Now, incidentally, in the ruins of Nebuchadnezzar's palace, archaeologists have uncovered a large room 56 feet wide, 173 feet long, midway in the long uh, wall opposite the entrance. There was a niche in front of which the king may well have been seated up on this little elevated area. Now, interestingly enough, the wall right in behind where the king and the important parties would have been seated, there was a plaster wall there. And again, these, these are discoveries that archaeologists have made that we know about. So, what a, what a great setting. I mean, here's this plaster wall right in behind this elevated uh, platform in this great banquet hall. Now, look at the words that are written there. If you, if you look over at verse 6, it says, Then the king's color changed, his thoughts uh, alarmed him, his limbs gave way, his knees knocked together. What were those words? Mene, mene, tekel, huparson. Now, he didn't know what the words meant. Why didn't he suppose that maybe there was a victory message in this? I mean, if, if these four wall, words appear on the wall behind you, you're having this great party and celebration. You're shut up inside the city. The enemy's outside. How do you know that that's not words proclaiming a future victory that you're going to have? You know, you have to figure that maybe Belshazzar knew what they were doing was wrong. Look at verses 7 to 9. It says, The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters. We've seen that before, right? Verse 8, All the king's wise men came in. Nobody was able to read the writing. In verse 10 it says, The queen. Now it's not Belshazzar's wife because verse 3 has already told us that the wives were there. Scholars feel like this is probably the widow of Nebuchadnezzar. Perhaps she's old. She's retired for the evening so she's not at the party. She hears all the ruckus going on, all the panic. She comes in. She has a plan. She points to Daniel. Now, look at the way she describes him. She says, There's a man in your kingdom whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians. Look at, look at how she describes him there. She says in verse 12, An excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel. A glowing description of how she describes Daniel. 
She remembers some of those days with Nebuchadnezzar. Some of what had happened back then when he had that dream in chapter 2 and saw that statue with the head of gold and, and the chest and the arms of silver and the torso of bronze and the legs of iron and the feet of clay and iron mixed together. And she remembers all that and how nobody could tell the king what was going on except Daniel. She no doubt also remembered what happened in chapter 4 when Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind and then at the end... He gave praise to Daniel's God. She knows that within their kingdom, there's a man of God. Now folks, isn't that a wonderful testimony of Daniel? I've told you before, in society, people may not pay much attention to us. But let somebody at work, you might work among a bunch of pagans. They might make fun of you and laugh at you, but let one of them get in trouble. And chances are they're going to come down the hallway to your office and they're going to knock on the door and say, can I come in and talk to you a minute? Will you pray for me? But do we have the kind of character and the reputation that somebody would seek us out. I hope we would. I hope we would. That's the kind of reputation Daniel had. He was a man of integrity. In fact, we're going to see in chapter 6 next week that when they tried to find some kind of charge against him, they knew that they couldn't find it. They put his life under a microscope and they knew they couldn't find anything against him. If they were going to try to find something against him, they were going to have to have the king come up with some kind of law that they knew Daniel couldn't obey and they were going to have to bring charges against him based on that. But my point being, they put his life under a microscope in chapter 6. And they could not find anything against him. He was a man of integrity. And again, here's the queen. Probably the grandmother. And she remembers. She remembers the salt and light that Daniel had been to Nebuchadnezzar. God's ambassador that, that Daniel had been to Nebuchadnezzar. And she points Belshazzar to him. Now look at scene 3, a stunning revelation beginning in verse 13. Daniel comes in and you can tell by the way he starts talking there in, in verse 13 and following. Daniel is not all that impressed with this guy. This guy is nothing compared to his grandfather. And, and, and Belshazzar offers Daniel all of these gifts and he's not impressed by those gifts. Belshazzar can just keep his gifts. But he says to, to Belshazzar that he's going to let him know what he wanted to know. And as he does so, he recounts Nebuchadnezzar's reign there beginning in verse 18. 
He says, O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would he killed, whom he would he kept alive, whom he would he raised up, and whom he would he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, his glory was taken from him, he was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets it over whomever he will. So he gives a little summary of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And, and the fact that Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's reign was only by the grace of God. As we saw in chapter 2, God raises up kings and kingdoms and he puts down kings and kingdoms. And we need to remember that today in the affairs of men, don't we? God raises up whom He will, puts down whom He will. Well, the indictment in verse 22, He says, And you as son Belshazzar have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of His house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you've praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or, see or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. You've got to admire Daniel, don't you? Here's Daniel standing before the most powerful man in the world at the time. Is he the least bit bashful about proclaiming God's word? No. King, you've got pride. And you've desecrated the things of God. And you've not honored God. This is a message that I'm going to interpret for you. It's God's message to you personally. And it's not going to be a good message. And you need to understand why. Because you've sinned against the God of heaven. And you've led people to sin. It's a prophetic message, right? Courageous message. You've got to admire Daniel. Well, he gives the judgment in verse 24. He says, Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. He tells him what it is. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. You've been weighed in the balances. Your kingdom, you and your kingdom have been found lacking. And it's going to be removed from you. He tells him straight out the judgment. And verse 30 says that very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. For two years, historians tell us, for two years, while Cyrus and the Persian troops 
were, were going around Babylon and they were, they were raiding the kingdom and coming against the kingdom and, and defeating parts of the Babylonian empire until finally this last night they had, they had Belshazzar and, and the Babylonian nobles trapped up in the city. For two years they had been working on redirecting the Euphrates River. Because again, it ran under the walls of Babylon, supplying water to the city. And so they had simply been working on canals and other channels to redirect the river. And they finally redirected the river. The water, of course, went down. The channel going underneath the walls dried up. And the Persian troops were able to get down in the riverbed, go right up underneath the city, into the city, and they attacked it. And Belshazzar was killed. Now, folks, there's some lessons we need to learn. First of all, God's word is sure. Forty to fifty years earlier, Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar that his kingdom would be taken over by another kingdom, the Medo-Persian Empire. I want you to jot down Jeremiah 51. Jeremiah 51 talks about the sudden downfall of Babylon. Jeremiah 51 talks about the sudden downfall that's going to happen to Babylon. How swift and sudden and complete it's going to be. This was decades earlier, this prophecy given. Daniel, decades earlier, had told Nebuchadnezzar, that his kingdom was going to be taken over by another kingdom, and he even told him who it was going to be, the Medo-Persians. Folks, what's that tell us? If God tells us something, you can take it to the bank, can't you? Though months turn into years and years turn into decades, God's word is sure. Second thing I want you to notice, God's Spirit does not strive with man forever. You know, sinners like to believe that God's not going to punish them. Unbelievers. Unbelievers just living however they're living. They just believe somehow or another just they're getting away with it. They, they might mock or ridicule the, the judgment of God. I guess some people think some people who think there is a judgment maybe think it's so far out there in the future. Why do I need to worry about it now? But look how suddenly it happens. Thirdly, judgment is sure. You may party hard today, but you have an appointment with God. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. You think of where we are in society today. 
the nations of the world and things going on in the world, do we think, do we think we're going to get away with things? Romans 1.18 says when the Word of God is suppressed, right after Romans 1.18 that talks about when God's Word is suppressed, the rest of Romans 1 catalogs different things that begin to happen. And those things that are cataloged, Romans 1 says is evidence that the wrath of God, the orge, the orge of God, the wrath of God is this, is this slow but steady, the Greek word orge, this slow but steady wrath of God that is building. It may grind slowly, but it grinds surely. And everything that Romans 1 is talking about, it, it says is evidence that the wrath of God is being poured out on that society. And you read, you read what Romans 1 talks about. It's things that we already see going on in our society today. And what Romans 1 talks about is it happens when we suppress the truth of God. We start down this slippery slope. And Romans 1 is basically saying God kind of greases the slope. He kind of greases the sliding board. He turns you loose to go your own way and kind of helps you go that way. Kind of greases the sliding board. And there's consequences built in. And you look at Romans 1 that what happens when the wrath of God is poured out on a society and where Romans 1 ends, folks, you have to realize that we're further along on that sliding board than people realize we are. We're a lot further along than people might realize. But people say, judgment of God, what's that? Oh, we can do all that kind of stuff. We can dishonor God, take God out of everything, mock His Word, make this decision in society and that decision in society, and we can redefine this and we can redo this and we can redo that. Who cares what God said? And we find ourselves exactly where Romans 1 says we'll find ourselves. And we're already there. We're already in that process. Meaning that the wrath of God is not simply eschatological. It's not simply future end times. The Bible says the wrath of God is being poured out even now. Yes, it's future, but it's happening even now. And again, Romans 1 is saying we can know it's happening by the things that we read in the headlines. The things that men are doing right now are evidence that we are already under the judgment of God. Judgment is certain. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, this shall he also reap. Good news now, 
the fourth lesson, in Christ, the handwriting of, of ordinances against us has been nailed to the cross. Remember what they did in ancient times? They would, when they crucified victims, they would, they would write down uh, what they supposed their sins to be. And they would nail that to the cross with them. The handwriting of ordinances against them. Remember, they, they thought they, they were doing that with Christ, right? He claimed to be the, he's the king of the Jews and all that. They, that those, those ordinances nailed him to the cross. See, that, that was their practice in ancient times at crucifixion. They would, they would write down somebody's, what they had declared somebody's crimes to be, and nail it to the cross. So as they were crucified and the public mobs would walk by, and look at the figures hanging there on the cross, they could see the handwriting of ordinances nailed up there to their cross. Well, Colossians 2, Paul says that the handwriting of ordinances against us have been nailed to the cross. We are weighed in God's balances and found wanting. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Huparson could be said spiritually of every single one of us. The Bible says we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've been weighed in the balances up next to God's holiness and righteousness. And you have been found lacking and I have been found lacking. But the handwriting of ordinances against us was nailed to the cross. Christ died the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. And Romans 8, 1 says, There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And that's the good news for us. Amen? Judgment's coming, it's certain. But in Christ, we have a substitute who has borne our judgment in our place. That even though I have been found lacking, I will go free because Christ took my place. Amen? That's right, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Yep. Okay. Next week we will, you know what? Now folks, pay attention to what's going on here. Nebuchadnezzar has now been gone 23 years. Then all this chain of worthless kings and then Belshazzar. Now Belshazzar's gone. Next week we're going to see Darius. 
And guess who's going to be there to distinguish himself under Darius's rule? Daniel. What's that say to us about Daniel? He was greatly beloved in heaven. God used him. Kings came and went, and each new king, it wasn't long before he recognized something about Daniel. There's something about this guy. And Daniel was used the whole 70 years that the Jews were in captivity in, in Babylon. Um, Daniel was used the whole 70 years. He was God's man in the king's court. And he never faltered. He stayed true to God. He never, comp- he never faltered. He never backed down. He never compromised. He was gracious. You read about Daniel's witness all through the book of Daniel. And you see what a gracious man he was. How respectful he was. But he never compromised. He told the truth. Daniel is a great model of how we're supposed to be in society. Exactly. Yep. And and he was willing if it on on those multiple occasions if if it cost him his life, he was okay with it. So be it. We can look at our situations and say, woe is me. But it might be that situation that God has you in to be his witness. And the darker the background, sometimes the, the brighter his servants shine. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. No, it's it's Aramaic, and you would have thought uh, they would have understood that. There's some discussions about that. Maybe the vowels weren't there, or or maybe even though maybe they when when it says they didn't couldn't understand it, maybe they understood the words, but it, they just had no idea what it meant. You know, we know what mane mane tekel parson is, um, but. What's that supposed to mean? Um, so there, you'll in the in the commentaries you'll read some of the debate about that. That you know it's it's Aramaic, and they would have known Aramaic. Was it written differently? Uh, maybe the vowels weren't in it. Um, 
Or was it that they saw the words, they just had no clue what they meant? We could, we could string words together that you and I would recognize, but those words put together would say, what's that mean? You know, what, what's the message in that to us? If you saw the words, you've been weighed in the balances and found warning, okay? What, what am I supposed to make of that message? So... He did not. Daniel was, time the exiles went back, Daniel was pushing uh, 90 years of age. And uh, he died there in Babylon. Sure. 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 Right. Right. Yeah. And that again, that speculated why when the handwriting was on the wall, he just kind of lost his color, and and he assumed it was some type of judgment instead of a victory chant message that whatever that writing means it's probably not good 